Hello and welcome back to I Want Our Job, the podcast. Today, we are thrilled to have Therese Houston, author of How Women Decide on our show. As you know, there are plenty of stereotypes and misconceptions when it comes to the topic of women in decision-making. Women are indecisive is one that has been around for a while. In her book, Therese provides research that shows men and women are actually equally skilled at decision-making. We're going to talk about some of the strengths women have in the decision-making process around collaboration, making decisions under high pressure, and tactical advice you can use when you are stuck making decisions. And recent studies are popping up showing the companies with greater gender diversity in leadership roles are showing higher revenue returns. And as you listen to this conversation, it should become clear why having a stronger gender balance is a very good idea for business. Let's get started. Therese, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Paulina. Can you tell us the story of why you decided to write this book? I first... The first conversation I had about this book was back in 2012. I was interviewing uh, a fellow psychologist for another book, and we got to the very end of the conversation. I had turned off the tape recorder, and he said to me, he said, you know, Therese, if you really want to write a book that's needed, you need to write a book about women and decision-making. And I said, wait, okay, why? <laughs> right? That's, that's the first question. And he said... It's such a boys club. He said, go take a look at your books on decision making and you'll notice that the books are all about men. And I was so shocked about this, Polina, because I love these books. I, I had I had several of these books that he was talking about and I hadn't noticed that the books were almost entirely about men's issues. But when I reread them, I noticed that women were hardly mentioned and and gender wasn't mentioned. And the basic theme that most of those books had was that if you... Um, uh, if you want to make a good decision, a good decision is a good decision no matter who makes it. And a bad decision is a bad decision no matter who makes it. And I would really like to think that's true, but I began to wonder, is it the case that um, if a woman makes a bad decision, it's judged more harshly? Mm -hmm. And I began to look at the research, and, and sure enough, there's a lot of research to support that we're much more critical of women's decisions than men's. Absolutely. Um, and so while you were doing your research, you mentioned uh, the woman how they make decisions. What what kind of things surprised you the most that you learned? Perhaps there, there are a bunch of surprises. I love doing this research because there was so much to learn. But I think that one of the most surprising findings was I wondered who is it that's perpetuating the stereotype that men make better decisions. Mm -hmm. So I ask you that question and you think, well, it's probably men. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> probably be men who would, who would say that. But there's been some fascinating research out of New York University and University of Massachusetts by Madeline Heilman and Michelle Haynes showing that women perpetuate the belief that men are better decision makers as well as men. It's not just men, but women do it as well. And um, I could tell you a bit about more about that research if you'd like to learn. But that was a real surprise to me that this is something that both men and women are doing. Absolutely. Well, my next question was going to be around... Um the, you, the research in this book shows that women are as de decisive as men, and so the idea that they can't make up their minds is misleading. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It is one of the most common stereotypes, the most probably the most common stereotype of, of women as decision makers is that they're emotional decision makers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the second most um, common stereotype is that men are more decisive, and that 
perception is especially true in business, that men are going to make decisive choices in business. Um, the research actually shows that's not the case, um, that uh, men as are just as likely to struggle with a hard decision as a woman is. Um, there are some populations where females have a harder time making decisions, but they're really unusual groups. So first of all, um, female teenagers have a harder time making decisions than male teenagers. And if you, you, you said you had toddlers, you don't have teenagers, but anyone who's worked with <laughs> teenagers knows that's a really unusual group, right? And um, some of the speculation there is that um, it's harder for female teenagers to make decisions than males because there's so many messages uh, about how girls should behave, so right? It's cultural, um, prob- culture. Probably, exactly, yeah. But although I don't think it's unique to American culture, there's, there's a lot of mixed messages in a lot of cultures, um, mm-hmm. whereas... I'm not saying it's easy to be a fe- teenage boy, but there's at least a clear, like, you need to be tough. <laughs> you yes. Uh-huh. You, you, need, you need to be assertive, right? Um, yeah. Whereas girls are getting really mixed messages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you, you also talk about studies showing, suggesting women are more collaborative in decision-making, more willing to seek advice. And and also that men, about what, what happens when they're under pressure um, and the types of risks they take. So I thought that was fascinating. So those are also, those are two of my favorite findings. Uh, the first is about uh, collaboration. And this was this is actually a stereotype that appears to be true. Women do tend to be more collaborative than men. So um, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're wondering about that one, that one does. Uh, female mayors, for in- instance, tend to ask their, um, their citizens for more input on budgetary decisions than male mayors do. So that that's one example. Um, so yes, women tend to be more collaborative, but they pay a price for it. Um, women are often seen then as it gets back to the decisiveness issue. Um, if, if women can't decide on their own, people assume, or if women don't decide on their own, people assume women can't decide on their own. And that, that becomes a real problem. Um, People actually make better decisions when they involve other people. So being collaborative is good. Uh, you reach better decisions that way. the The problem is, is that um, you know people will perceive you as as a less effective leader. Mm-hmm. I've even heard that from men um, that some men get feedback that they need to be uh, less collaborative in their decision making because they don't look like they're powerful enough. If they ask too many people. It is. It's fascinating. It's an, it's unfortunate because they're reaching better decisions by bringing more people into the decision. Yes. Well, that's why your book, I feel, is so important because there's all these misconceptions <laughs> and um, you're, you're highlighting them and so that we can understand what they are. Talk to us about stereo threat and how knowing about it is enough to help you perform better. So stereotype threat is one of the most important concepts that's come out of social psychology in the past couple of decades. And uh, it's a long phrase, stereotype threat, but what it refers to is, is a pretty simple concept. So it's the anxiety you feel when you're concerned that you're about to live up to someone's negative beliefs about you. So it's not necessarily, Polina, that you have negative beliefs about yourself, but you're concerned that someone near you or in your organization has some negative belief about about you and other women, and that's affecting your performance. My my favorite, there's there's lots of 
fantastic examples in the literature, but my favorite personal example comes with driving. Now, I know you're in San Francisco. Driving is awful in San Francisco, so you might, maybe you don't drive. Do you drive? Oh, yeah. You do? Okay, great. Yeah. And I'm a great parallel parker, too. <laughs> okay, great. See, there you go. Parallel parking is where it comes in. Yeah. Um, so I have a number of males in my family, um, not my husband, but some older males, who, who believe that women are terrible drivers. Yes. And they... <laughs> <laughs> you hear this all the time from yeah. them. Uh, and it's interesting. If I happen to be driving and one of those males is a passenger in my car, even if he doesn't say out loud that women are bad drivers, I know that he believes this and I become hyper vigilant when I'm driving. I am less comfortable merging onto a crowded freeway. Um, there is no way that I am going to attempt a parallel parking job <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with one of them in the car. And I'm also going to take simpler routes rather than the most direct route because I just want things to be easy for me because I don't want to, I don't want to fall into the trap of proving him right. Yep. Right. So, and that actually affects my performance. It makes me less comfortable driving. And I probably am a worse driver with him in the car. I underperform because I'm preoccupied with his beliefs. And that would be stereotype threat where you're underperforming because you're concerned about, am I, am I about to do that awful thing? <laughs> right. Yeah. Even though you normally wouldn't do that awful mm -hmm. thing. And this happens uh, there's a, uh, this happens for minorities, um, African Americans and Hispanic Americans um, in test taking. They're often concerned that they're going to show that they are less intelligent because that's a negative stereotype about those groups. Um, and if they they're unburdened by that stereotype, they, their test performances are outstanding. It also happens to women in the workplace. So if a woman is concerned that she's going to be viewed as less decisive, research shows. Sure enough, if, if the men in her organization tend to have the belief that women are going to be less decisive, that's a burden for her, and suddenly she becomes preoccupied with it, and sure enough, then it's harder for her to be decisive. So it's this very difficult thing. Even if you don't believe in the stereotype, if the people around you do, it can be distracting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I love how throughout your book, you have tactical advice. So what would be the tactical advice for a woman knowing that she's up against this threat like just understanding that it's it's not true it's a misconception like what would you advise so first of all it helps research shows that it helps to know that this is part of the problem um that that stereotype threat is a, is something that exists and if it's happening to you it's it's not surprising that actually helps people get over it mm -hmm. the the second thing that helps is to um uh when you start to feel anxiety Mm -hmm. uh, let's say you're, you're feeling anxious about you're in a meeting and you, you're, you're thinking through a problem and you're starting to feel anxious about contributing your idea. Mm -hmm. uh, tell yourself, it's normal to feel anxious right now. I'm feeling anxious because this is a hard decision. Mm -hmm. That's that's why I'm feeling anxious. And, and that kind of self-talk of, of reframing the anxiety really helps people refocus on the problem because of course it would be a hard problem for anyone um parallel parking and in a crowded street is hard for anyone <laughs> male <laughs> or female and the point being that you're getting anxious because it's a hard task not because so does that make sense you want to yeah. reframe it as this is why i'm anxious it's it's not about my gender or uh be belonging to some stigmatized group Got it. And you also give advice on um, like t tactics when it's you're having a problem d 
difficulty making a decision, like having three options, I think, or can, was one of them. Can you talk to us a little about those? It's, it's a bit paradoxical, right? You would think uh, if you're having trouble making a decision that what you want to do is narrow down your options. <laughs> That's what most of us try to do. Um, the, uh, what the research shows is that when, when people are trying to make a hard decision, all too often they just think yes or no. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to decide, uh, should I start up this podcast? Right? You just started it in the fall and you're trying to decide, should I start up the podcast? And you're probably... Most of us just frame it as, should I do it or not? Mm-hmm. And research shows that we make better decisions if we give ourselves at least two very different concrete options. So that might have been for you starting this podcast. Should I start this podcast um, or should I, let's see, what would have been an option for you? Um, uh, uh, start a, um, a coffee shop. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, Ooh, would I want to start a coffee shop? No, actually, no, I don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but giving yourself some other realistic option that you would consider. Or maybe I want to write a book. Do I want to mm-hmm. do the podcast? Would I like to write a book, right? Those are both yeah. big, big creative undertakings. Mm-hmm. And it often helps give clarity around why would I want to start a podcast rather than write a book. And um, it can help then shape whether that's a good decision for you or not. I love that. And then I think it was more than eight is where it becomes too difficult. Was that the number? Absolutely, yeah. So there, there becomes. Uh, we we tend to think that more choices is is always going to be better, but there begins to be diminishing returns, and and you basically are kicking up too much dust. Yeah, <laughs> you give yourself kind of more than seven or eight options. Most of us don't have that problem in everyday life, except maybe in the grocery store when you're standing in front of the cereal. Oh, whole food, yes. <laughs> Exactly. Or menus. I mean, I prefer when there's eight items. But this can be applied to so many things in life, even how people build, you know, software or, you know, how they sell things. I mean, it's it's just so interesting. So while I was reading your book, I was thinking, aha, so the difference in how men and women make decisions can explain why companies with greater gender diversity and leadership are showing greater revenue returns. Do you feel your research supports this also? It's it's something that's uh, an exciting debate that's going on right now. There's, As you point out, there's been a lot of recent data suggesting that companies with more diversity at the top, either on their executive boards or in their um, their C-suite, uh, are, are bringing back better returns on investment, mm-hmm. um, higher stock prices, all of those things. So great. So it was like, okay, put more women on the boards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and it's not clear what the what the causal direction is, right? It could be that smart companies are doing everything right, including having more diversity at the top. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I do believe so. But looking at the research that that I've seen, there's so much evidence that having gender balance leads to better decisions. Um, one of the reasons for that is um, when people are stressed, when there's a really big decision to be made and people are under stress to make it, let's say you're trying to decide whether or not to sell your company um, or you're, you're trying to decide uh, what, are, what are we going to do about this big move, mm-hmm. those are stressful conditions mm-hmm. and men and women tend to decide differently under stress. Yes, that was my next lead in to that, your research, which was so fascinating. So I'd love for you to talk about it. This is one one area of of the research that is, both it's both fascinating and it's 
it's you want to figure out, okay, how does that apply to my life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and this research shows that um, if you have men and women under normal conditions and you ask them whether or not they want to take a risk, so everybody's relaxed and they're thinking about, do I want to take a risk or not? Men and women are pretty likely to say that risk over here looks attractive, this risk over here looks like it's too risky. So um, uh, what happens under stress, though, I can come, come give you an example in a moment, you get people really stressed out, and what happens is all of a sudden, men and women behave very differently from one another and the way they normally behave. Men become much more interested in taking risks, women want to go for the sure thing. So what that might mean in a company is if a company is trying to decide, um, do we want to buy this other smaller company? If it's a really stressful period that the companies, the executives are going through, then men are more likely to say, it's definitely worth it. We should pay this really high price, even though it's risky. Women are more likely to then want to do the sure thing. Let's not buy this company. Let's let's just, that's, it seems like it's an overextension of our reach. Um, and so it's important to have both men and women in the room, because if you only had men in the room, then <laughs> what you'd find is everyone in those stressful conditions would be going, let's do the risky thing, and no one would be questioning it. So it's important to have men and women in the room and for women to be speaking up when they feel like, ah, I'm not so sure about this. Absolutely. So that's why I thought your book was so important because people will see those stats and then, you know, read the research in your book. And I think there it just becomes crystal clear why that's a good idea. Um, it, I, I really, I, I, it is, it's hard to understand. Well, well, wait, why would putting women in the room lead to better decisions, right? And, and you begin to speculate what the reasons might be. But there's, a, there's been some great neuroscience showing that, that men and women are responding physiologically to the stress in the same way, but it leads them to, to back into opposite corners. Yeah. Another thing that was fascinating to me is um, where you talk about how researchers have observed white males feel the world is a safe place and as a result have lower perceptions of risks and the different consequences it has for decision making. Um, and you mentioned also how there was a dating app that, that you know, built their, you know, the functionality based on that kind of risk, the different levels of risk that a man or a woman feel. Can you talk a little about that? Absolutely. I just need to say, though, I am so impressed with how much research you do. <laughs> I love your book. I don't know how you, I don't know how you do this every week. This is amazing. Thank you. Uh, yes. So uh, there's something called the white male effect, which could mean just about anything. <laughs> but uh, um, sociologists use that phrase to describe the fact that men tend to white men in particular tend to see the world as a less risky place than other groups. Um, White men see their world as a less risky place than um, African-American males, Hispanic males, and then certainly white males see the world as a less risky place than almost all groups of women. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting, uh, what does that lead for decision-making? It, if, if the world doesn't seem very risky, then a certain action seems like, well, of course we should do that. Whereas for women, if as well as African-American men and Hispanic men, um, we can certainly, we've certainly seen this with gun issues, right, in terms of it being a, a riskier place for African-American males. But we also see it in terms of food safety. We see it in terms of um, investing money. Um, there's a lot of areas where something seems less risky to men, um, white men in particular. And that leads to changes in how you're, what you're going to decide. And so it really is a great argument for why we need diversity in decision-making groups. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and let's talk about one more thing before we get to more about you and your story. Um, repeating mistakes and why people make bad decisions. I thought this line from the book was so powerful where you said, we generally think we have more control in the future than we've had in the past. So can you give us a few examples how this type of thought process can lead to bad decisions? One of the, uh, this is a very recent finding that, that people believe they'll have more control in the future than they've had in the past. And like, that's pretty abstract. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So this was a group um, led by uh, Daniel Gilbert and his team. They were they did research at Harvard, and they went to the Cambridge train station. So this is this is in real life. This is not in the lab. We're happening. You can imagine you're you're waiting for your morning train, and someone comes up to you with a uh, little clipboard, and they have a few questions for you, and they offer to pay you some money for your time. Now, here's what was clever: Gilbert and his team only approached people who had just missed their train. <laughs> so they're on their morning commute, you show up and you're 30 seconds late for your train. Mm-hmm. So what they asked people was, okay, so if you missed a future train, why would you miss a train in the future? And people had all kinds of reasons. Oh, I shouldn't have taken all that time to drink the extra cup of coffee or I shouldn't have checked the the web for political updates this morning, whatever it might be, right? Mm-hmm. They, they would have things that they could do differently in the future. But when they were asked, okay, so why did you just miss this train? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then it was never their fault. It was, oh, you know, the the machine wouldn't take my ticket. Um, uh, It was a problem. The machine wouldn't take my credit card. There weren't enough gates open. For, For something that had just happened and just gone wrong, it was something else's, someone else's fault. Mm -hmm. But in the future, they would have control over that. So it's fascinating. uh, The way that we think about the future is we'll have control. Something that just happened, however, that was completely not my fault. And I think this is fascinating. It has implications for um, all of us in terms of looking at um, if, you know, we, we see someone in our lives who keeps taking back a spouse who keeps leaving them. <laughs> and, yeah. and you look at them, you're like, what are you thinking? Why do you take him back? Or why do you take her back? Because they keep leaving or cheating on you. Um, and they, that person may have a dozen reasons why things are going to be different in the future. But ultimately, probably the deep down one is in the future, I'll have more control. I couldn't control what happened in the past, but in the future, I'm going to be able to make a difference. Yep. I mean, and the same goes for exercise or dieting or, you know, working harder. I mean, I just think just understanding this concept is so powerful. It's so powerful. When, when you've made a bad decision in the past, unfortunately, you're likely to keep making that bad decision in the future because oh, yeah. you just believe, like with a diet, I, I can do this. None of the diets have worked in the past, <laughs> but this new one will work when really perhaps you need a, a very different approach. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us, what are your days like when you're not writing books? And how did you end up on this career path? I I love my work. I, I am living my dream job, I've got to say. Uh, on my days when I'm not writing, um, I'm uh, often preparing talks. I, I really view writing as teaching. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to writing, I am really enjoying preparing talks to as another way to connect with people and improve the situation for women and just improve decision making in general. Mm-hmm. And what about your your early influences? Um, 
where did you grow up? How do you think uh, your your early life influenced the career path that you ended up taking? I grew up in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people like to call Cleveland the mistake on the lake, um, <laughs> which I think is a bit unfair. <laughs> I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I I had uh, my my family. I had a single mom. Uh, my my dad left our family when I was about nine or ten, and I had a a very strong role model in my mom. She was a, a labor union organizer, mm-hmm. which. Maybe a concept that most people aren't familiar with, but it, what it meant was that she uh, she represented uh, teachers and school bus drivers and custodians um, in getting better contracts for them. And so I grew up with this very strong model of uh, women can be incredible leaders, um, but in addition that, that you, you want to be looking out for someone who is struggling and doesn't have much of a voice. And, and that has really influenced me. I, I made my first, I, a story I think is rather charming and <laughs> a little embarrassing, is um, my first leadership attempt felt like a bit of a disaster. When, when I was in third grade, I, I tried to lead the other third graders on strike. <sighs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure most you know eight year olds even know what a strike is, uh-huh. but I knew what a strike was because my mom led union workers on strike, and I was very unhappy about uh, ha- what would happen at lunchtime. You know, normally at lunchtime you you have lunch and then you go out and you play recess, right? You go outside, <laughs> and in Ohio we would often have really rainy days or cold snowy days in the winter and what would happen on those inclement weather days is after we had lunch we had to sit at our desks and put our head down Hmm. it it was terrible no no kid should have to do this after a peanut butter and jelly sandwich right (laughs) and um so i had complained um to the 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 lunch leader who who insisted on our doing this Mm -hmm. who was just a sixth grader when i look back on it it was really unfair (laughs) the poor Mm -hmm. sixth grader and um but this was her way of maintaining control in the class and so one day uh because things weren't changing i decided to lead us on strike and i i took all the kids out to the playground we didn't leave the school but we went out to the playground rather than sitting at our desks with our heads down um i got in a lot of trouble (laughs) the principal who i don't think i'd ever had a conversation with came out to talk to me and um i had no idea that it would have such repercussions i did i that was that was the new part of being on strike that I didn't know about, but the good news, Polina, is uh, the situation changed. We got a new lunch leader. We were now allowed to play. Yay. We didn't have to sit at our desk with our heads down. So even though it felt like a disaster to me, it was a very good outcome. Yeah, what a great experience so early in life. <laughs> Absolutely, <love> and <laughs> it's one of those stories that when you know, I don't know, it came up maybe in my fifth year of marriage to my husband. He just like. You have been a go-getter from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. So um, how about the journey of writing this book? What was the most challenging, most enjoyable, um, and any advice that you would give to other women who who want to write a book? I think an important thing in any job is to recognize 
you need to like the grind. <laughs> this is something a friend and I often like to say to one another. So often we think about a job as the glamorous parts. Uh, and those tend to be, you know, in writing, we might think of people doing uh, TV interviews um, or um, uh, we, we, we see a TED Talk of some writer. And, and that's what we think about as as writing. For most of us, though, most of our jobs, 80% of our time is, is doing some task that's repetitive and challenging. And you really have to like that part of the job. In writing, there's a lot of editing. You, you write something and you keep rewriting it and rewriting it. And you, I, I, I really like actually finding just the right words and the right sound for the concept to be as, as vivid and as, as visceral as possible. So um, I enjoy the editing process, but that's an important thing in, in finding any job that you like is, will I like the grind? And sometimes you have to try the job to figure out if you like the grind. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And are plans for another book? Do you have any? I do. It's too early. I haven't figured. I, I do. I have started um, working on the next book. I know that um, I want to do interviews again. I did interviews for this first book, and I love hearing people's stories. I'm sure that's a part of your job that you enjoy as well. Absolutely. Uh, a good, a good story is, it can be life-changing. And so I know that I'm going to be do, do interviews for the next book, and the rest you're just going to have to wait to find out. All right. Well, I I mean, there's so much in the book that we didn't get to talk about um, that I enjoyed, so I'm telling our listeners that they should definitely get the book if they want to know more. And I love how you offer tactical, you offer research and tactical advice. Like, this is how you apply it. So um, thank you so much for being on our show. And is there anything else that you want to share or... People like to say that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but it's actually much more accurate to say that men are from Mars and women are from a less respected part of Mars. So that, I think, and that's one of the key themes in the book. And you can find me uh, on my website at uh, TheresHoustonAuthor.com, and I've got some events coming up in Chicago and Buffalo and in uh, Western Massachusetts. So I am really looking forward to the months ahead. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, Polina, this is a delight. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please remember to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, Subscribe to our newsletter at IWantHerJob.com. And we would love if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time.